doesn't accept that definition or that difference, then it's a very easy thing to write. Did you have left on rebuttal? How much time was left on rebuttal? Good afternoon. Welcome to the Court of Appeals. Please be seated. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. When I read it, The court doesn't belong to the judges, it doesn't belong to the lawyers, it doesn't belong to the courthouse crowd. It belongs to the people of this state. Welcome to another episode of the Georgia Appellate Review. My name is Ryan Locke. And I have a very special guest with me today, all the way from Florida. Although we're the Georgia Appellate Review, we have our feet in Georgia, but we have our eyes all across the Great Union. And uh, I have with me Rocco Carbone III. He's a solo appellate attorney at the law offices of Rocco Carbone III. And he concentrates his practice on state and federal criminal and civil appeals, although he primarily focuses on criminal and post-conviction matters. Um, He's handled a bunch of them. He's licensed in Georgia, Florida, and New Jersey, so he has a lot of thoughts about how things differ. He's a member of the Florida Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers Amicus Committee, an officer in the United States Air Force Judge Advocate General's Corps, and most importantly, he loves Georgia Appellate Review. So Rocco, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Um, And I I, I really appreciate... uh, that now we've identified you, Scott Key, and I guess there's one other person who listens, and we're gonna we're gonna get that person on the show, and then and then we'll be done. The goal is to potentially get ten, making double digits. Uh, <laughs> I think will be a big milestone for you. So <laughs> that, that'll really that'll really blow the doors off in the Apple Podcast Store. It'll be <laughs> yeah, five stars all around though. There we go. So, so Rocco, tell me, tell me how you how you came to practice appeals. So, when I first got out of law school, I joined the state attorney's office in Jacksonville, Florida, as a prosecutor, um, and I, I took a couple of appeals there, um, which are probably still pending, um, and uh, was interested, but just didn't really have the time to devote to an appeal. Uh, the the way I wanted to. So you would do what you could and then kind of move on. Um, and then after I left the state attorney's office, I went to a large law firm uh, and there I was involved in a couple appeals, but more from the point of literally checking citations and making sure um, that the cases were still good. So it was a much uh, different perspective. Um, but around that time while I was at the big firm, I ended up applying for and was accepted into the Air Force JAG Corps uh, as a reservist. And so uh, at that time, I started thinking a little bit more about, okay, if I wanted to do um, the Air Force uh, where I could be gone from my practice for potentially a couple weeks, a couple months or, or longer, what type of practice could I have that number one is sustainable um, or number two is mobile? Um, and so I thought a little bit more about what I enjoyed, which was appellate work, uh, the times I had uh, been involved in those cases. And from that point on, I really just kind of put myself out there to get as many pro bono appeals as I could um, and join the Florida Bar Appellate Practice Section. They have a pro bono committee um, and started having some success at the appeals that I was handling. And then I've just kind of run from there. Um, and uh, that's pretty much with the exception of the cases in which I provide trial support or I co-counsel with trial counsel on all I do uh, in my practice are appeals and post-conviction matters. You know, that, that's so cool to have a, an appellate-only practice. And, and I think you're one of the few lawyers who, who I know who does that. Because it seems like even if, even if you have a lot of appeals – it's tough to not get sucked into some trial cases. Yeah, but and it's it's tough when you have the availability to go to court. But when uh, it, judges don't like to hear, "Hey, judge, can I get a continuance for nine weeks while I go to training?" <laughs> um, so it becomes uh, easier when you just don't really have the availability to do it. I, I also like. I I think it's so smart to 
to get involved in the community because it's, you know, as opposed to, you know, when I was a, a public defender or doing a lot of criminal trial cases, you're in court all the time. You're seeing people all the time. You're chatting about your cases in the hallway. Um, but a, a, an appellate lawyer, you know, it can be pretty, um, pretty solitary. Yeah. And I think beyond just your point, which is making the contacts and <laughs> to, to fight against the solitary um, nature of it, I think you need individuals who can be mentors to you. Because why you think what you think might be a great issue, they're going to say that's a terrible issue, <laughs> and so it. I, I do it also for the purpose of having folks that can help guide me through uh, the sticky wicket of an issue that I think is good, um, or might they might be able to point me to a better issue, um, and having that opportunity to brainstorm with people. The you know as prior guests of the podcast will attest, um, you know they'll be on the pod. And then like two days later, I'll call them up and they'll be like, oh, it is, did the recording work all right? And I'm like, yeah, 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 that, that's fine. I have this issue I need to talk to you about, about Crawford. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I need your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and you know, it's so valuable to, to be able to tap into that experience. Yeah. And I think one of the uh, parts I most enjoy about appellate practice is how collegial all appellate lawyers seem to be. Uh, generally, uh, because it's it's not adversarial except on the paper. Um, the record is the record, and then the only really th- the only thing you really need from someone is an extension, which most people are very happy to uh, not object to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that usually um, bodes well for developing uh, relationships and having colleagues uh, that are willing to you know listen to any issue you may bring to them. And now one thing I wanted to talk to you about is now, – now you practice primarily in Florida mm-hmm. and Florida criminal practice is a bit different from Georgia in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it seemed in Florida you get a, a significantly more pretrial discovery than you do here in Georgia. Yes. And so I know that you do a lot of trial support with lawyers. I, I want you to, to tell me about that. And particularly about how in, in, in Florida it's it's you know particularly beneficial because of all this kind of discovery and litigating of issues you do ahead of the trial. Well, I think that it it, it can and can't be beneficial because <laughs> it can sometimes bog you down. But there's a very open discovery in Florida. Uh, ultimately, all felony uh, prosecutions uh, depositions are allowed. And so you are uh, able to depose anyone who is what they call a category A witness, uh, which is someone who saw what happened uh, or some has, has some firsthand knowledge that will go to proving up the crime. Uh, so you don't even have to s- seek uh, court approval to depose these individuals. Uh, in the context of misdemeanors, though, you would have to seek court approval but most misdemeanors, you don't need depositions. Um, if you do need a deposition, say for a DUI or domestic battery, you just file a motion requesting leave to depose certain individuals. And I don't know that I've ever had a judge deny that motion, mm-hmm. um, particularly when you have DUI cases, which ends up, you know, can be very technical at times. Um, and so part of the prep for trial. Uh, obviously, is deposing these witnesses uh, to make sure that they say what they said um, and the cops got it right, um, which often is not the case uh, when you start really uh, speaking to these folks and you get them under oath. Um, and, and I think the bigger part of this uh, comes into play when you have a case that's uh, heavy on forensics, when you have some sort of expert witness who's going to testify. Uh, you need to prep for that depot, or you're supposed to prep for that depot, um, keeping in mind a potential Daubert hearing, um, which is kind of in flux right now uh, in Florida. And, but uh, you need to be as prepped as possible per, to file a potential motion in lemony to exclude that expert's testimony and opinion. And and you're not permitted to raise ineffective assistance of counsel in the direct appeal, right? That's correct unless it's clear on the face of the record. So the the times that it's raised tend to come to the point when there's an issue that's clearly a fundamental error 
Um, and the attorney absolutely should have objected to something and, and failed to, um, or invited error to the point where it's clearly ineffective. Um, but those are rare. Uh, that's happening a little bit more. Uh, I think I, I just listened to a CLE recently where the uh, district court was basically saying, uh, one of the judges, raise it more often uh, because why not resolve the issue um, before you have to raise a post-conviction motion that also has to work its way through the system because a post-conviction motion gets filed back in the trial court and then you may or may not have an evidentiary hearing and then you have that whole route that you've got to potentially appeal as well Mm -hmm. um so if that issue is present and it's obvious on the face of the record raise it on the direct appeal and don't be afraid of that that yeah and and that only increases the importance of litigating this stuff pre-trial because you know, if, if you miss it, you, you may be waiting years to get back to it. Correct. And, and some DUI, or excuse me, I was, so some, um, some cases uh, where you're alleging ineffective assistance of counsel, I mean, they'll, you'll follow the motion and it'll sit there for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just speaking to a potential client the other day uh, who had a post-conviction motion sitting for seven years. Um, so, um you, you want to try and uh, raise it as early as you can if it's a, an issue with merit. You know, and, and that's been an issue here in Georgia too. Um, and, and the Supreme Court just uh, just uh, kind of, I don't know, in a, in a lengthy aside in an opinion, dispressed their you know, displeasure at the length of time these appeals are languishing and, um, and wants, I think the, the council superior court judges to create a rule about it. Um, what effect that'll have remains to be seen. Um, mm-hmm. but, but it's, it's interesting that even stripping away ineffective assistance stuff, you, you would think that that might move cases faster, but it seems like that that's not the case. Well, I think it, the, the cases move to some extent as fast as the attorneys are willing to move them. Obviously, you have the rules of procedure that require uh, certain briefs to be filed within certain periods of time, but it's a mixed bag where you have the the collegial opposing counsel that's not going to object to an extension. Uh, to some extent, there, there becomes a point where it, it just goes too far. <laughs> yeah. That's not, it doesn't happen too often, but uh, when you have the AG's office, uh, the attorney general's office, uh, that handles all of the appeals, um, at the, uh, appellate level and some appeals or post-conviction matters at the state level, but it's usually the prosecutors, uh, from the state attorney's office at that level. Um, they, they're just overworked. And so they don't really have a lot of time. Um, uh, so it's, it's all about keep the, the speedy justice of it all. <laughs> You know, it's interesting here in Georgia, the local prosecutor will, uh, will, will defend the appeal unless it's, it's one of those that goes directly to the Supreme court, a a death penalty case or where death could have been imposed or if if there's a Mm -hmm. constitutional issue. And then that the attorney general is a party and they will also file a brief typically at the Supreme court level, um, Mm -hmm. which I usually kind of feel, I, I don't know if any. AGs listen, but I feel bad for you because <laughs> you're often writing a brief and then you don't, you don't get any credit. You don't show up for yeah. an argument and you know, um, it's just kind of more work for you. Um, well, I think that would make better rounded attorneys too, from the, from the prosecutor perspective. Cause I think you would, if you, if you're following your case up through the process, I think you're more aware of what the case law is. Uh, you're more aware of potential issues that may be raised. And so you as the prosecutor, you're probably not going to put yourself in a position where you're creating error or you're avoiding error by saying to your defense attorney, hey, why don't you file this motion? Hey, don't forget to argue this uh, if you really are interested in preserving your conviction. Um, I think sometimes, obviously, there's some very experienced prosecutors at the, at the state attorney's office uh, throughout the, the state, but they're not always aware of what the legal issues are uh, that can come back to bite them later on because they don't have to really deal with too many um, post-trial motions or yeah. issues. I, know, I, th- the, I think the hardest cases for, for me are when 
number one is when it's a retrial because those are always super clean. And then number two is when the prosecutor who tried the case is also appealing it because they know everything. And you know, you yeah. show up at the motion for new trial hearing and you're trying to make your argument for, you know, you know, 13th juror argument or insufficiency of the evidence. And the prosecutor stands up and is like, well, judge, as you heard and I heard when this witness and this witness and this witness, and you're sitting there like, oh, sh-, like I showed yeah. up late. I showed up late to the play. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, you know, I hadn't thought about. There is a little bit more of an even playing field, I suppose, when you get to this level, wherever the you as the attorney that's maybe looking at a cold record and the AG who's also looking at a cold record, um, you kind of start fresh, um, and you don't have that uh, in the back of your head because that could also be a downside too. Because while you may know the facts of the case better, you might be um, jaded by the facts of the case right. and 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 kind of focus on something that really isn't a legal issue that has merit. Yeah. I mean, I think once you once you kind of put your trial blinders on, it's kind of hard to take them off. Yes. Yeah, you know, I think so. I mean, even even when you're a professional, you know, I mean, I mean it's hard for for you know, if if I try a case, you know, at the end I'm like, "Oh, well this was error and this was error and I can't believe this happened." And then it turns out none of that matters. And <laughs> Well, cuz then you look up the standard of review and you're like, "Oh, well, abuse of discretion, huh?" Okay. Right. You know. And then so, I'm like, you know, ego involved in something that the judge denied, and you know, I'm like, oh, I was certainly right, and you know, turns mm-hmm. out I wasn't. And well, you know, I was just talking to a, a person I'm helping out for trial support, and I said, well, this is an important issue because if it goes before an appellate court, it's de novo, and so they don't have to provide any deference to the trial court's decision. And he said, well, because it's de novo, do we get to appeal it directly? I said, that's not what the what the issue is because he i mean they're just not used if somebody who does all trial work doesn't always have to worry about these standards of review mm-hmm. um and that's not on the forefront of their minds um so i think it's you know it's just, it's just a different viewpoint you know and, and some stuff you just lose like like here in georgia you have to challenge the constitutionality of a statute way early on mm-hmm. when when a trial lawyer is is unless you are hunting for cases to challenge statutes, you're almost certainly not thinking about it. And what's interesting is I just dealt with this in another case. In uh, the if the statute is facially unconstitutional, it can be raised for the first time on appeal and direct appeal uh, in Florida. If it is uh, unconstitutional as applied to your client, that issue should be preserved. Mm-hmm. And so you have a little bit more leeway in Florida. That yeah, that um, yeah. What are real estate prices like down there? Because I would I would appreciate that. Kind of, <laughs> that's a, that's uh, a, that's I can get behind that standard of review. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no state income tax as well. So they got that going for us. Well, I'm going to just go ahead and shut this down and get in my car. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, tell me, how do you get how do you get most of your trial support business? So it's through uh, word of mouth. So I try to write uh, articles through Factals, um, Quarterly Magazine, The Defender, FACDL. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a, uh, an article coming out, I think, in the next couple of weeks on Stand Your Ground. Uh, and so uh, I shameless, shamelessly self-promote and uh, send out articles that I've written or uh, I'm working right now to help or I'm working right now to put a blog together. Uh, it's a very sad blog right now, but hopefully it'll uh, do a little bit. <laughs> it'll be a little bit more meaningful looking shortly. Uh, but also word of mouth, and so I, I offer uh, colleagues of mine um, who um, I see in the courthouse. I'll say, hey, you know, if you, if you ever need any help, I'm around. And when they take me up on it, and I can do a good job writing a motion to suppress or motion to dismiss. And you know, the, the client's happy, they're happy. Um, uh, it usually works out well. Um, and so it's just been trying to, to cultivate it um, over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. When do you think is the best time to bring you in on a trial support case? Well, I think that's a good question. I think it depends on the case. Uh, obviously I think that uh, if you have a case in which there's a little bit more, need for prep for a deposition uh, for an expert uh, earlier is better. Uh, but if it's something a little bit um, less complicated where it's pretty clear what the, the facts are and you're just doing the uh, 
lay witnesses testimony uh, after the majority of discovery has been completed to help draft whatever dispositive motions uh, may be uh, apparent to me or to you um, uh, as the trial counsel. Uh, because uh, as, as I had said before, they're not always aware of really what is the issue that might have merit on appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having the ability to look at, okay, well, if we appeal this one issue, the standard of review is better for us. Uh, that, that calculation um, is better because the other thing is too, you don't want to raise every possible issue that you can find because there's no reason to clog up, clog up the case that much either. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you really want to raise as many issues as you think have merit, uh, but also try and build the facts to support the reasons for those issues as well. So to your question, it depends on the case, but I think that prior to trial um, in which uh, the discovery has been completed to have one last review potentially or in the alternative after the trial for any post trial motions. Um, I do know some other folks who actually sit there uh, with trial counsel during the trial. Um, I haven't uh, done that as much, uh, but they're there to kick trial counsel and say, object to this at this point mm-hmm. and give them the grounds for objection. You know, I've, I've done that kind of more in a like, second chair and also handled some motions and stuff kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it turns out to be fairly valuable because one, I'm, I've tried cases alone and um, I dislike it and I am worse at it than if I have a second chair. <laughs> True. You know, and so I, I think you should always have a second chair and, and you can usually find someone who wants trial experience to do it for you um, for, for, cheap if, if you can't, you know, if your client can't really afford um, to bring on an appellate specialist or someone. But the, what, what was really valuable in, 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 in the cases that I've done are one, um, you can be listening to witness testimony with, through a different lens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you can be building your, you know, you know, okay, I'm going to do a motion in limine later for, so where we can introduce some character evidence for the defendant, but then they can't get into some prior bad acts that he did because mm-hmm. it's not for the same character trait. And so you know you're you're kind of building that outline of what you're going to argue is what's developed in the trial um, in a way that if you're standing up there examining a witness, you, you just can't really be you know both cross-examining witness and thinking about what you're going to do next and thinking about the the motion eliminate you're going to do in a day and a half and and all that. I hundred percent agree with you. You know, and then and then two, when stuff comes up, um, you know, I've, you know, they'll be kind of in the middle of an objection fight, and you can pop on Lexus and do a quick yep. search, and then boom, maybe you know, there's a case right on point, and you know, and I've just handed my laptop to mm-hmm. to you know to the lead counsel, and you know, with some stuff highlighted in in the case, and and we've won objections that we would have lost because you know, boom, here's here's the answer. Yeah, and I think I'd like to do more of that uh, in my practice. It's just been difficult as of late because of uh, my military commitments. And so I think that in the future, I'll have more opportunities uh, or more uh, availability to sit second chair. Uh, But uh, for the last uh, year and a half or so, it just hasn't been – I haven't been able to do that. So tell me about your – kind of your workflows for appeals. I understand that in, in Florida, almost everything is electronic. Everything is electronic now. So uh, all the, so we have five district courts of appeal, uh, but beyond the district courts of appeal, the uh, circuit courts uh, at the trial court level uh, also are uh, on e-filing now. And so everything is paperless. Um, and so, What's nice about that is you can file a notice of a appearance or a notice of file review in pretty much any case uh, and have all the documents that you would need uh, to kind of have a, a grasp of what's going on. But from the district court of appeal level, uh, the record of appeal, uh, which is in PDF form, is on the docket as well as all the initial briefs, the motions, the orders. So your entire case is right there and you can... You can bring it wherever you go, wherever you have uh, an internet connection, basically. When when you're reviewing stuff, 
do you do a digest? Do you make notes directly on the transcript? Well, I, I'm completely uh, electronic. So I do go through the record and tend to create a digest. Uh, however, the first step I always uh, take on appeal is call the trial attorney mm-hmm. uh, and the client. Uh, because at the end of the day, like I had mentioned, you don't want to raise every issue potentially. You want to raise all the ones that you have that have merit. They might have raised a number of issues, but they might say this case really to me boils down to these three issues. Uh, they might be right or wrong, but it definitely gives me some direction to focus a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, I I'll go through and uh, read the read the record. Um, and, and see whatever issues uh, appear. The other thing is, what's nice with the, the PDF is you can you can word search objection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, that that can that can save me a little bit of time to at least find what what may or may not be preserved as well. You, you know what I would love trial attorneys to do? Um, object. I, I, well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, trial attorneys who are listening, just object. Just Please. object. Just do it. <laughs> if you if you just feel it in the if it, you know, back of your head, you know, yep. Shout out, jump up, shout out, objection. Um, no, so I learned this tip from a um, from civil lawyers uh, from my PI practice was in, in depositions. This one lawyer would say whenever there was something that he would later want to follow up on, right? Whether you know, it turns out that there were documents you're sitting in a depot asking about documents and they haven't produced all of them. Or, you know, he's sitting and he, and he wants to send more discovery about a certain issue. Um, he will say, okay, I will follow up on that with you. Mm-hmm. And so then later, his paralegal can search the transcript for, I will follow up on that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's like a flag for everything where, okay, I need to set, you know, we need to draft some RPDs about this issue. Okay, we need to deal, you know, call up opposing counsel and say, hey, it looks like that your, your production was incomplete for this. And, and so where's this other footage or whatever? Um, it, it would be nice for trial lawyers to also do that. I guess objection is a pretty good way. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that you, your point, I think the other part of this is too, uh, as, as it relates to finding that error in a, in a case, is I, I don't know if they have them in Georgia. I know that they have them in federal court, and they have them uh, that like one page cheat sheet for all the different objections. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing more frustrating to the reading and objection, Your Honor, improper. Well, that's not really a ground for right <laughs> for an issue, for an issue, uh, and you're not really objecting to anything. Uh, and I and I think like you're saying, those cues are so important, but also making sure that what you're objecting to, you can tie to a rule of evidence or some sort of you know, due process violation that you can expound on that in a meaningful way. Well, no, nothing's more frustrating than reading a hearsay objection that like doesn't mention confrontation. <laughs> yeah. And then you're, you're like, uh, yeah, you go to like your, 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 you know, your bank of like, you know, briefing on issues. And you're like, well, let me just delete those five paragraphs out of mm-hmm. yeah. know, what I'm going to put in. Um, mm-hmm. What, how, how has your appellate practice changed from when you started to now in terms of how you do the work? In terms of how I do the work, I think I'm definitely more efficient. I think I, I obviously have um, a bank of appeals that I've worked on. And so I'm more, you just become more capable of, fine-tuning the process and so instead of taking what would amount to (laughs) at times i would feel like three weeks to do one appeal where i'm just grinding trying to figure out well what's the standard of review and uh how do i really shape the facts here you you find the facts that matter you find the issue that matters um and and so it's just efficiency uh more than anything else um, which all, obviously only comes with with practice, and, and really trying to figure out what issue um, matters to an appellate court, um, right? And, and and shifting and shifting your mindset from um, from that trial attorney level. I find that it, something that I've developed, which has been nice, is sometimes you see issues and you go, "Oh, I know that." Uh, this is an issue, but we will not win on it. 
that it you know, yeah, yes that and that and I think in a nutshell that's the point is is uh, raising really trying to develop that one issue and I think that's what's beneficial about helping at the trial level where you can say look this case comes down to this like if this piece of evidence comes in you're sunk so let's really build up this issue in the record now so that we have something to work with mm-hmm. on appeal yeah. And, and not relying on like the one fleeting comment on silence and closing and yes yeah exactly yeah, yeah that was yeah. that was that was my pet project for string of appeals until i finally gave it up and realized well the, the other thing that I, I heard this in a cle recently as well as the cum, cumulative error uh, argument mm-hmm. um a lot of folks don't raise that in direct appeal um because they just don't so if you do have a lot of little issues uh, maybe little is not the word, but you can you can put that on the record uh, as early as possible, at, right after the trial and your in your post trial motions that there was cumulative error here, um, and I and I think if you don't have that one really meritorious issue, um, you might be able to to find some relief that way. Yeah. What What are the coolest things you think that you're doing in your work in terms of how you do the work? So, um, honestly, the coolest things would probably be just the level of mobility I have now. So I have, um, and now I don't know if you mean in terms of the cases I'm doing, or do you mean just my, the actual ability to practice in the way? You know, I I guess kind of both. I mean, because, you know, I guess because the, you know, I mean, at least for me, it's like, as you know, I work more cases, I get better at the work that I'm doing and how I do the work. Then I get more complicated cases that will push yeah. my ability to do the work, and it kind of bootstraps in that way. Yeah, so I, I think let's talk about it from the the practice uh, management perspective, and then I'll talk about the cases, some of the cases I'm working on. So mm-hmm. from the practice perspective, having done trial work and having uh, had that experience and having gone through boxes of papers, not having to do that is amazing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and having I, I have. Practice Panther, which uh, is my uh, management software, mm-hmm. and it has everything I need on it. Uh, I can create invoices. I can do all that work. I can track my time. Uh, and then it also has the cloud associated with it. So I have everything I ever need. And I just bring that, my laptop and an iPad, and, and, and I'm off. So I could be in the airport working when most of the time I wouldn't be able to do that before. So from that viewpoint, that's what's been really uh, great for me. Now, from the, the cases I've been working on, I've been getting a, a fair amount of pretty serious cases because I'm also a special assistant public defender uh, who uh, I get some appeals regarding that. Mm-hmm. And so some of the interesting cases I have now relate to juvenile resentencings. Mm. Um, and so I have a couple uh, individuals that were charged as minors between the ages of usually 14 to 16 that were indicted for first degree murder um, and convicted, and now they're up for resentencing. And so uh, the whole series of cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, where it was Roper, Graham, uh, Miller, Montgomery, those cases have trickled down, and the Florida legislature in 2014 um, enacted a resentencing portion of the statute. So these individuals in the last couple of years have been getting resentenced. So if they received what was deemed an unconstitutional sentence uh, under the Eighth Amendment, um, they have now had a full-blown hearing and now they're appealing those hearings. And so I'm one of the attorneys that's been fortunate enough to, to have a couple of these cases. And so now I get to argue the closest thing to a death penalty case, uh, which is a juvenile who has received a life sentence. Mm -hmm. Um, And and some of those issues are issues of first impression in the state of Florida. Um, And so, for example, I just got uh, involved in one case that I'm working on the brief now. And I've talked to a couple juvenile uh, law uh, related nonprofits uh, to kind of see what else is going on in the country because there isn't a lot of law in the state of Florida. So I'm pulling cases from Georgia, actually, from Pennsylvania and elsewhere and looking at different state statutes to kind of cobble together arguments for why the sentence that was imposed on my client was unconstitutional. You know, I, I think it's 
it, it's also really valuable to be able to work on the same issue on multiple cases because yes. it, you know, you, you really get to develop an expertise in that area and do that kind of really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really develop your arguments on those issues. Well, yeah, and you and you get to see the nuance, right? Anytime you have a, an issue that may be complicated, you're going to have the 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 problem of saying, okay, now I fi- I understand it, but why is this case different for my client? And, and finding that way you can argue where you can say, yes, this case is this case held this, but my case is factually different or legally different, and that's why even though you didn't give relief to Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones is entitled to relief. Um, and I and I think, like you said, the more you do certain types of cases, the better, the the keener your eye is to those issues. When you know, it's it's particularly satisfying to see attorneys who have like a a, a real command of their area of law or a broad command of criminal law in general at oral argument. Mm-hmm. You know, because they they can really engage in. A, a conversation with the justices or the judges wherever it goes, and I I know that that's for, for you know for for younger lawyers like me, um, for for lawyers who are who are less experienced in appeals. I know that's a big fear point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where hey, well, we, yeah, hundred percent because you just don't know, right? <laughs> Because they ask the question, and you say, uh, "What? What's Crawford?" You know? well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what about the Williams case? And you're like frantically looking at your thing. The word Williams doesn't appear anywhere in my brief, Judge. So uh, uh-huh. I, don't, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I think that's. I think that is a common nightmare <laughs> nightmare scenario. Yes, and, and truthfully, it's probably the nightmare for anybody <laughs> oh, yeah. before our argument. But I, but I think the the. The word you used was apt when you said conversation, and I think there's a difference between having um, some sort of prepared argument that you want to um, go f- through versus having a conversation to some extent, um, where you're saying, "Let's get to the right result here uh, for the right reasons," and I'm going to answer any questions that you have. And I think when I try and think about oral argument, um, that's the goal. One uh, of your first guests, I think it was your first guests. Uh, you talked about his simplicity in addressing the issue, mm-hmm. um, which I try and do in both my writing and when I have to make an argument. And I think when you are able to do that, inevitably, you're not bogged down with worrying about uh, unimportant things um, or things that distract away from what the real issue is in the case. You know, and I've really come around on this. Because um, I think when you are when you're really committed to saying I'm going to appeal one, maybe two, at the, the max three very important issues that go to the center of the case, it, it really you know it crystallizes your view. I guess crystallizes mm-hmm. the wrong word. I guess it clarifies your view of the case, so that it's so much easier to talk about it and deal with it and and everything you know and, and you're not. You know, well, Mr. Chief Justice, I'm here on you know twelve enumerations. The yeah, first, I know. <laughs> you know, and like you're you're you know the first three are about hearsay objections, and you know, well, because inevitably the other issue is you're going to get hypothetical questions. Mm-hmm. So you're you're going to get the well, what about in this factual scenario? And obviously, the worst thing you could do to say the worst thing you could say is, well, Judge, that, that's not the facts of this case. Well, th- no kidding. That's why he's asking you a hypothetical <laughs> question. So. Um, but that's where they're coming from. I always try and put myself in the, the mindset of if I had to rule in this case, what am I looking at? And I think ultimately as a judge or justice, I'm looking at not just your client. Obviously, I'm looking at public policy and I'm looking at the effect that my decision is going to have on anyone who is similarly situated. Mm-hmm. And and so you, ha- if you come from that perspective, I think you have to welcome those differing facts and those different issues and expect them. All right, Rocco, you know what that sound is. <laughs> I do now. <laughs> <laughs> it is time for the lightning round, which is everyone's favorite portion of this podcast. Um, you know, you know, if, if they're able to get this far in. And so congratulations <laughs> to, to everyone who has, who has hung, you know, hung out with us this long mm-hmm. all right as you know rocka you you give answer to the lightning round issues 
you're right or you're wrong. And then um, if you're more right than wrong, then you win something at the end. Okay. First lightning round issue, as always, is the parenthetical cleaned up. So, interestingly, I had not I, – I wasn't even aware of this until I listened to your podcast until very recently. And I am kind of firmly against it, honestly. You know what? It's, it's, it's very popular on Twitter. Okay. But almost everyone I've talked to dislikes it. Yeah, because a, a comma here changes the meaning of a sentence, or right. a you know, or a uh, I you know, you leave out a few words, and it, it really can affect ultimately the holding of a case. Um, so, or the so yeah, so I'm not I'm not for it. Okay. What now? Here's your softball Oxford comma. Well, I think you just defined it correctly. Obviously, yeah, Oxford comma all the way. The and, and you know and it, everyone answers yes because anyone who answers no, I just end the interview and then delete it. <laughs> and that's <laughs> that's that answer is just that's that, good that, to know. <laughs> yeah, it's quality control for the podcast is what it is. <laughs> that's fair. Do, do you use any special fonts? So in Florida, under the rules, I'm not sure what the rules are in Georgia, but you have to either use Courier New or Times New Roman. Mm. Uh, and Times New Roman 14 font is the way I go. I've, anytime I read something in Courier New, I feel like I'm reading a document from like 1983. <laughs> yes. The big word processor is going in the back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The computer size of the room. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I just I'm distracted by that font. Especially when the real, like what really screams lawyer from like, you know, 1978 is a, it's a courier, a document in courier new, all caps. Mm -hmm. Everything is the same size. Yes. You know, it's almost like, if, you know, you know, some prop department is like, we need legal papers <laughs> is, is what it seems like. Yeah. That's, you know, we have rules and, um, are they more of suggestions in Georgia? Well, I, I think the the um, and look, I'm going to be wrong about this and get flamed about it. I think in the in the the Supreme Court, I don't think they tell you what font to read, to use, but that it has to be you know legible and of a certain size. Um, and I think there are rules in the Court of Appeals, and um, to on, on the odd chance that any court of appeals justices listen judges listen to this mm -hmm. i'm sorry i just don't follow them <laughs> rebel without a cause <laughs> right well and I, I you know i mean i think that you know if you're using some and i, I don't know I, I use the the matthew butterick fonts um concourse and equity and because i think they look so nice but then you know i, I put them in 14 point I do all the margins correctly, and I, I never use them to try to squirrel around a page count or a word count. Yeah, well, that's – yeah, that's you know, 100%. And, yeah, and I think that that's where, where people get in their trouble. Either it's you know the, the they fool around the size or the kerning or whatever. And it, well, well, that goes back to a previous question you asked me about how my practice has changed as well. Everything I write is shorter now. Yes. The more, the more I have – the more cases I've worked – the shorter the briefs have become. Yeah. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think that the 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 simpler you know, I, I mean the I think the best legal writing is where you're not looking at it and saying, "Wow, that's good legal writing." You're just looking at it and saying, "Oh, this is so clear. Of course mm -hmm. this is the answer." It's it's inevitable that this is the answer. Yeah, there's a there's a book I'm reading right now um which I will not get any payment for bringing up, but uh it's called Point Made. And it's, yes. uh, have you read that? Yeah, it's a great book. Oh man, it's so good because it uses examples throughout the entire book and mm -hmm. it is so helpful to read good writing <laughs> uh, yeah. from a lawyer because it's tends to be rare. It you know, I I think it's it's um uh who writes that book? It's um Ross, I can't remember his last name. It starts with a G. Yeah. We'll put it, we'll put it, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's a, um, it's, it's a great book. There's also one for, for judges, um, that talks about good, good kind of judicial writing, um, from, from that vantage point. And he also has a product called brief catch, which is like an add in to uh, word okay. and it, and it will kind of go through and flag, 
um, issues in your brief. And, and I think it's, I don't know, maybe like 10 bucks a month or something. Um, and it's a cool thing. It, it's a cool thing to use to um, improve your legal writing. Okay. See, this is why I, I listen to your podcast for points like this. See, there, there we go. Yeah. And, and, um, and you're not going to get paid for it. But no. once, once I remember Ross's last name, I'm going to uh, it's I'm going Guberman. to email him. There we go. What an Ross, unfortunate last name, Guberman. Ross Guberman, <laughs> when you listen to this episode, you owe us some money. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> We're a free signed copy of your book. So. Yeah, there we go. There we go. All right. Next issue, um, hyperlink stuff. Do you do hyperlink stuff in your briefs? Yes. I just recently started doing that. And in fact, the five district courts of appeal recently had administrative orders at various times that have come out uh, saying that they prefer it. Um, it that's huh. not explicitly what they have said, but they, they kind of light, laid out if you're going to use them, how to use them. In Florida, uh, most of the appellate judges per kind of a, a survey that was done read their briefs on a online or a tablet or an iPad. Um, and so we're moving towards that. And all of my understanding is all of our Supreme court justices read it, read the briefs online. How nice. So I was just uh, listening to a CLE about this as well, about how we read differently when we read online. Um, and we read the, when we read briefs electronically in kind of like a T or F pattern um, and how there's a need to kind of have more white space in your brief. So you have to be more, much more aware of that and how, how distracting footnotes are even more so when you are uh, reading a brief electronically, because you, you have to scroll up and down to read them. Uh, and so how they're already disfavored, but in particular, when you're, when you're reading a, a brief online, how, how much worse it is. That's yeah, that's really interesting. And I've always used inline citations just because I, I like how how it's close to what it's talking about so mm-hmm. you can easily jump to it and you don't have to move your eyes up and down. Mm-hmm. But I also, on the other hand, I, 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 I like footnotes when they increase readability. Mm-hmm. And it, but they, I think they, re- they, they, they don't often – to me because you do have to go up and down and, and any, I, I, anytime I read a brief in which there's no citation to anything, I'm starting to think wh- whether it's in a footnote or even in a summary argument, mm-hmm. I go, I, I don't feel like I can trust it. Right. Well, <laughs> so, yeah. What's hiding? Yeah. Well, or more importantly, like who's really saying this? Is it right. based off of the case? Is it based off of the record or is it just counsel uh, opining on his position uh, on the on the issue, and you, you, one thing that I particularly hate about footnotes, and um, I, I know that that our our, our chief judge of the court of appeals, uh, Judge Dillard, really loves footnotes. Um, mm. But I think this is a strong argument against them: is that when you when you pull a case on Lexis or Westlaw, a lot of times those footnotes are at the bottom of the opinion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so it becomes more difficult to. Kind of go back and forth when you're when you're just reading it on the screen, mm-hmm. because they're not just right there. Um, you know, you have to travel some significant electronic distance to get to it, and um, I think it's kind of cumbersome to click the hyperlink down to it and then find where it is and then read it and then forget what you had just read up top. So you have to click the hyperlink back and then find that again. It's a lot of like orienteering <laughs> while reading. Yeah. And in, in, in what you had mentioned, if it helps readability, you know, as you just described, it really doesn't. <laughs> so, so that's kind of that same idea that you're looking at a case on Lexus or Westlaw, and you got to keep going back and forth. Same idea if a, a judge or justice is reading your brief on their tablet or iPad, yeah. Especially if it's hyperlinked, you know, do, it's kind of. Do you hyperlink to the record too? I do not. I have not done that. Um, I don't know any folks who do either yeah uh, i've never seen that before so it, I, I don't know that that's going to change anytime soon i think it would be i think it's one of those things that i think would be so cool to be able to do um and i think w- with people i've talked with especially at the trial level 
um, to, to be able to, to file a motion of the trial judge, be able to just jump to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it is difficult, particularly if you do not, if you don't control the record, you know, mm-hmm. like when you're at least here, you know, if you're hyperlinking to the record that the Supreme court has, you know, in, in its kind of internal docket, you can't control what page you go to. So it might be like, okay, you can, oh, you know, here's volume seven and then scroll down 200 pages. And that's what I want you to look at. Whereas, you know, if, if you're hosting it on, on your Dropbox or whatever, then you can just, you know, extract some pages and say, oh, I want you to look at this, you know, the, the, the search warrant affidavit and then you can click on it and then boom, there it is. Well, and that kind of goes back to the, the question of, as always, readability, because wouldn't it be better just to maybe take a, 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 picture of the record and then drop that in mm-hmm. um, the brief uh, whatever real whatever portion that you really want of the record uh, so that they can really look at it and and that and that's your next issue screenshots oh. photos etc have you done that I have not I have thought about it before I haven't really had a case that it was really worth doing right. I've created right. charts. Uh, so I was dealing with a, a statute that had been amended several times uh, through the years where there was an increasing it was it was a case related to statutory interpretation about a subsection whether or not applied um, to the to another recidivist statute um, and so I laid out the evolution of the statute and the increase in the mandatory and outlined the fact that the section at issue, um, was not included until the same time as this recidivist statute was enacted to show that there was in, there was an interplay intended by the legislature. Um, that was kind of the reason that I had created that chart, and I just kind of put it as part of an appendix. I love that because, like, that would be if you're writing it out, that would be like a page and a half of dense legislative history that that nobody knows. So, and that's one of the things that because that's what it was originally. And I thought, well, no, I don't get this. They're not going to get this. So, what's the the easiest way for them to look at it? Which was the year that it was enacted, and the fact that this subsection, like subsection six, was enacted the same exact year um, as uh, the recidivist statute was enacted. That's, that's the kind of thing where like if I'm reviewing my own brief and I'm getting bored at a section, then I know no one else will read it. Yeah, 100%. And that's why the briefs are shorter now. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I have less fear of the delete button. Now, you know that most of your judges and justices read on a screen. Mm-hmm. Do you format differently because of that? Do you use like different colors in briefs or anything like that? Not different colors, but I am very conscious of white space. So I make sure that I try to make sure that my paragraphs are pretty short and I do a lot of headings. Mm. So I make, I make sure that in, in Florida, you, you are required to have a table of contents and table of citations. And in okay. fact, if you fail to do that, the court will kick it back to you and ask you to, I've seen this before, we'll, they'll issue an order telling you to create a table of contents or table of citations. Um, and there was, uh, I forget Brian Garner. It was one of Brian Garner. I think it was like writing in plain English mm-hmm. uh, where he, he talked about how your table of contents can be the most persuasive part of your brief sometimes. And I a hundred percent agree with that because in some of the cases that I have worked on, especially the juvenile resentencing cases, the law is evolving and the question of should this person who was a juvenile at the time get a life sentence, you need to be able to lay out the fact that juveniles are different and that's what the science says, but that's also what the law has recognized. And if you don't do that by really going step by step through the court's decision-making process, I think you just make a, a statement that is without support. Oh, it's yeah, this, he shouldn't have gotten a life sentence. Okay. Well, why? And so my statement of facts and my arguments, I might, my, my main argument might be on page 40, but it took 40 pages to really lay out the law in a persuasive way. And so I needed to, I need to have a lot of headings mm-hmm. to, to really be the shortcut for the judge. So he doesn't really have to read 40 pages. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Kind of a high level, like 
So you, you can skim through and read just the headings and know what's happening. And then when you, 100%. And then when yeah. you get, you know, if, if you're less interested in that, but maybe you need to, you know, go and look at some of it, but you can get to the heart of it with uh-huh. with some forward momentum. Yeah. And you're not And it also it, it also helps me in argument because I can say, you know, judge you know, you can look at instead of just like page 40 of the brief, you can say, you know, subsection C of issue 2 really lays this out because then it, it's it's easier for me to organize in my own head sometimes too. Yeah. Do you um do you always ask for oral argument? Um no. Um I am trying to ask more often for oral argument, but they don't like to they they it's funny you go to these uh, events and they're always saying we want to do more oral, more more oral arguments. And they're and like, well, they, grant my request. <laughs> yeah, I think grant my request, and they never grant the request, especially in criminal cases. And uh, sometimes I, I've handled some um, domestic cases with parental rights that have been terminated or dependency actions. Um, and in those cases, they don't want to have oral arguments because they're trying to resolve the case uh, in a speedy fashion so that the child who's the really the issue of the appeal can get permanency quicker. Mm-hmm. And so th- in those types of cases, and even in a lot of criminal cases, because a lot of time it's statutory interpretation, um, they, they don't grant review. I've had seven cases before the Florida Supreme court in which they dispensed for the oral argument before I could even request it. Ah. So, <laughs> So that's that's kind of that side note. If you're like, well, I can't wait to get up there, and you're not going to Tallahassee, right? Pretty much, you know. See, so. we're lucky in Georgia where our Supreme Court will pretty much grant you argument if you ask for it. Yeah, no, they're they're actually moving away from that in in the Florida Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Do you um, do you use an introduction or a summary of the argument or put that somewhere? Yes, I always do an introduction um, for the most part. I'm actually trying to get away from preliminary statements um, where you're doing the, you know, the record will be referred to as R period, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and if I do that, it's going to be in a footnote. Uh, but I try to encapsulate uh, the case in as short of a fashion as I can so that I. I it's it's interesting, <laughs> right? I mean, and get right. to the heart to get to the heart to, of the issue because I just imagine if I'm a judge and I got to read a brief and it, like the first sentence that I read is uh, on March 15, 2007, uh, Mr. Jones was arrested. Period. Like, well, okay, that's I don't really care about that date. I don't know who Mr. Jones is, and I you know what was he arrested for? I, I mean that's not really compelling. So. Right. You know, try to encapsulate in a, in a way that will b- make somebody actually want to read it. Do you, when you draft, do you draft in Word or do you use something else? Word. I always use Word. Do you use styles and, or anything like that? No, I don't. Um, I handwrite sometimes. Um, I do a lot of outlining because I use so many headings. Yeah. Um, I try to, I would say about, so if I broke up how I wrote a brief, about 40% of it would be the final edits where I go through after my first draft. I'd say 20% would literally be me just outlining and the, the remainder is like the actual drafting. of. So my drafting of the with the brief, the first draft is the probably one of the shorter portions of the time in which I'm preparing a brief. Because it to me, you don't work it out sometimes until you've gone through several drafts. Yeah, yeah. Yo, I, I've started pushing my um, my preparation back. Like, like in my early appeals, I would kind of research for the motion for new trial and then go in and do it, and then just kind of let it sit and then get a docketing notice and then kind of write it all then. Mm-hmm. Um, and inevitably, the docketing notice would come at the worst time, you know. And so you're you know really scrounging for time. I've now I've pushed a lot of that preparation back to doing most of it around the motion for new trial, and just you know filing a a, a pretty substantive brief that's that's about what it'll be in the in the court of appeals um, or the mm-hmm. Supreme Court. And so I, I used to not do a lot of outlining, but now I do because I found that well 
I need an outline when I stand up there to argue in front of the trial judge. Mm-hmm. And before I would just be like, you know, drafting. And then I would create an outline from what I drafted. And I was like, uh, my legal writing teacher would be mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and not, not to continue going back to that table of contents, because that's at the end of the day, I could, I can walk up to the podium with that to some extent. Right. Right. Um, and that and that allows me to not have to recreate the wheel, and especially if I've taken the time to to really think think through the logical progression of my arguments, um, it 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 just gets solidified for me, so I don't have to reinvent the wheel next time. Do you use uh, party names and briefs? Um, it What's, depends. I don't know. If, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if there's a convention in Florida one way or the other. If you are the um, state of Florida, the attorney general's office, they tend to always call them by um, either appellant or appellee. Um, but I, in the trial court, I use people's names more often. Yeah, because you can see them, um, and so I want to try to make more of a connection for the the trial judge. I, I, <laughs> you know, if it's a gruesome case, you don't want. You know, right. Mr. Smith, I don't want you to connect Mr. Smith with what happened. Um, just be as cold as possible. This is a legal issue. Um, but if there's some sympathy, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, find I, I will use appellant and appellee in like the procedural portions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll use names. And I don't know. I know in – I'll probably get yelled at if I tried this in federal court. A lot of times I don't use Mr. or Miss or what, you know, Mrs. or Ms. or whatever. I just use the last name. I don't know that, that that's incorrect. I, I always use Mr. or Mrs. Mm-hmm. Um, or Miss. I tend to think that, that to me, that's just kind of just in case. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so somebody prefers a title because if somebody's a doctor, right? Um, well, it's you funny. I want to take their title away from them. I will, I will use doctor and officer. And then <laughs> but for everyone else, uh, you know, or detective or whatever, um, you, know, you know, Smith, Jones, whatever. Uh, That's an important point. If it's a law enforcement officer, I tend not to use their name unless it's required because I just want the, the court to look at them as law enforcement, this kind of mm-hmm. group of people that sometimes violate people's rights, not right. this one particular officer. Right, just kind of a faceless entity that – Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Rocco, I have good news for you. Okay. I think you have passed the lightning round. Oh, boy. Congratulations. Thank um, you. you. know what? I think your your prize for winning the lightning round is going to be a Supreme Court of Georgia case so that you can finally stand up and get oral <laughs> argument. Yes. <laughs> Please, pass them along. I'll do it pro bono. I will. I promise. <laughs> You you will have to come up here to Atlanta, but you can finally look someone in the face for one of these appeals. Yeah. <laughs> and hear, hear firsthand why <laughs> your arguments are not persuasive. Yes, well that's that's true. You know they could call me and let me know as well if they'd like. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> right, the, the the last the last question of the day is what is the last bold choice that you made. Or what is a bold choice that you really want to make in either your brief writing or or appeal practice or oral argument or whatever? That's a really good question. Bold choice. Can you give me what you have in mind as a bold choice? So you know, one like dropping literally dropping the mic after an oral argument uh, would yeah, be a bold well, choice. <laughs> that would be a bold choice that you probably do not want to make. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I I want to do. Is I, I saw on Twitter it was it was an appellate judge from some other state, and it was a state like yours where most of the judges read their briefs on iPads or on the mm-hmm. screen or whatever. And so she posted a screenshot of a brief where, like, like the heading was in a different color than the rest mm-hmm. of the brief. It was offset to the left, so mm-hmm. it it broke up the left margin. The margins were very wide. And and it it looked it looked so good because you could tell you would be able to scroll through and see exactly where every heading was, mm-hmm. jump to whatever you want. Now now the problem I think 
doing it here in Georgia is a lot of our judges and justices still read on paper. So it would look horrible on paper. You know, you wouldn't be in color. It would look like you just misformatted all the headings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I think that it, it it would be a mistake to try to do it there. I think it would be really cool um, if you if you could file a, a, the same brief, right, but just two different formats. Mm-hmm. And if you could file like a paper format and then an electronic format and maybe include hyperlinks in the electronic. I don't think under our rules you're permitted to do that. Mm-hmm. No, but I think um, in terms to – in relation to your question, I think that the bold choice – I think the bold – one of the – I don't know how bold of a choice it is, but uh, is – putting a lot of law within the facts section. So what I mean by that is, um, and I could, I could probably send you a link to one of, and, and the opposing party has objected to this or asked for it to be stricken from the brief before, uh, where the, especially the juvenile stuff where I said to understand where we are and how we got here, you have to understand the evolution of the case law and be prior to making arguments regarding the facts of this case. I'm going to go through the U S Supreme court, uh, jurisprudence as well as the Florida Supreme Court jurisprudence on juvenile resentencing. And then I did that. And then I got to the hearing of my mm-hmm. client. And that was in my fact section. And because I didn't want the judges or justices to get to the point where they're like, well, we're just going to start with a, a sentencing rehearing. Because to me, we didn't, that, that didn't come out of anywhere. That didn't, that didn't come out of a vacuum. It came from the guy's been sitting in jail for 20 years and all this has been happening. And these are the facts and the right. law. And this is how we got here. And don't make it. Well, we had a sentencing here and he didn't, he didn't get the relief he wanted. He's not happy with it. Like it took a lot for this guy who previously got life to now be here on appeal before you 20 years later. And so let's take yeah. a look at that. Yeah, the the road is longer than, you know, just getting back in court to be resentenced and denied. And now yeah, and, and I want them to see that. I want them to to in a visual way, not just yeah. by you know saying in this year this case was decided, and then in that year this case was decided. So I like that choice. Yeah, send send me the. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, and so if people want to look at it, okay, good. Yeah, they can take a look and see. Well, well, Rocco, thank you so much for joining me, um, spending an hour of your day with us at the at the Georgia Appellate Review. If if people want to find you um, on social media and your website and stuff, where can they find you? So my website is uh, it's very clever. It's carboneappeals.com. Um, and uh, my email is uh, Rocco at Carbone Appeals, R-O-C-C-O. Uh, and I'm new to Twitter. Uh so again, at Carbone Appeals, I'm trying to be consistent. <laughs> so, I like that. Yeah. yeah, consistency is the key. Um, so that's th- those are the main places, uh, and then the rest of my contact information can be found on my website. And on my website, I have sample briefs, and I have some of the cases that I've worked on with the opinions hyperlinked, um, so you can see all that stuff. Well, great. Right. Well, um, yeah, all that will be in the show notes. Uh, if if you're in Florida or Georgia and you want to hire Rocco. You probably should. Um, <laughs> if you if you made it to the end, please give us five stars. Um, if you disagree about anything I said, give us five stars anyway, so that other people can hear it and then disagree with you. There you go. <laughs> All right, it's it's been another uh, another episode of Georgia Pellet Review. Uh, we'll see you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>